That sounded like the cue. <laughs> oh, goodness. Have you had a good day? Anybody, did you leave anybody back out at the beach? <laughs> All present and accounted for here. <laughs> oh, goodness. Let me just get this set up here. It was um, 1945, and uh, my dad was a young uh, lieutenant that ended up in um, Japan by way of the Philippines and um, became involved eventually in MacArthur's uh, work in the occupation of Japan and rebuilding of Japan. And along the way, uh, he met my mother, uh, who was a dad from, from Texas. My mom was... Um, a young lady who was uh, from Nagoya, Japan, who was a major industrial city. And um, she didn't talk much about the war, but I think that a few years ago she began to share some things that we'd never heard before uh, about the time she was trying to walk home. And uh, Japan has a lot of earthquakes, and there was a rumbling, and it caused her to fall. And when she rolled over on her back and looked up at the sky, the sky was filled with American bombers that were getting ready to level the city of Nagoya. And she was uh, <coughs> injured and taken to a hospital. And, um, <coughs> you know, the hospital eventually was uh, strafed by American fighters and the glass that was shattering um, ended up impairing her eyesight. That was some, uh, a challenge that she had for the rest of her life. Somehow, she began to work on this uh, military base and uh, met my dad, and they were eventually, uh, they were married. And um, truth was, in those days, um, with the feelings that the Americans had toward the Japanese and the Japanese toward the Americans, there were only a handful of states that actually permitted an American to marry a Japanese. And so neither family came to the wedding, and only a couple that uh, had, um, my dad had saved their life in a car accident, stood by them at the wedding. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, uh, first grandbaby was born. <laughs> and, uh, and I had my first trip to the United States, to a small town uh, in uh, Texas, to uh, be introduced to all the in-laws. And I guess uh, this little Japanese-American baby was uh, as much a curiosity about any as anything but, you know, I think babies have a way of uh, healing rifts in families. And my mom was uh, delightfully uh, uh, accepted by the, the family, and they, they've loved her dearly. But, but going back to Japan then from that trip, my parents still didn't know what kind of world um, that I would grow up into. Um, you know, some of you have experienced that. At, at that point in time, I think, you know, it's different today for a Japanese-American, but at that point in time, we didn't know what kind of um, life that a, that a mixed-race kid would have. And so um, my parents did a couple of things because they couldn't really, because they came from such diverse religious backgrounds, religion was really ne never a part of our household. Morality, ethics, certainly, you know, but not, but not faith and not spiritual matters. The other thing that mom and dad tried to instill was a sense of my own worth as an individual and that I needed to stand uh, based upon that and to um, live in a respectful way 
and to make a difference with my life, regardless of what came. And so from, a, from the time I was little, I was, I was really driven by this question about how do I do something that's worth my life? How do I make a difference in this world? And even for a little guy, that's a pretty big question. And you know, usually you're sorting through the usual things, right? I'm gonna be an astronaut, or I'm gonna be a scientist, or I'm gonna be a doctor, or something like this. But then as I grew into the 60s, I really began to see um, the world differently. You know, the United States was at the height of an increasing involvement in Vietnam in a war. Uh, as I read the news about what was going on in the United States and seeing kind of the, uh, the development of the civil rights movement and the uh, tensions and the conflict that were going on there, I began to think, you know, what I need to do is that I need to give my life to making a difference in terms of what's happening in society. So I began to be involved <clears throat> in the student political movement of the days. And even though I was in high school, I uh, became a leader in, the, in Japan in the student political movements and spent a lot of time my last year's school um, making speeches, trying to lead the way. I didn't believe really in uh, violence or anything aggressive like that. I felt like there was a message that was, could be more optimistic and more hopeful and more respectful in terms of the way people interacted and, and did things. And then a couple of things began to happen to me. Um, one was my last year school. I was actually in the uh, principal's office talking with the school administration about some matter. And um, a young girl burst into the this classroom in tears. Uh, and she said, Chang's going to die. Chang's going to die. What are you going to do about it? And I couldn't understand what was happening and why she was coming for me. But Chang had been um, a friend of mine through childhood. Chang was a, 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 a Korean-Japanese heritage, and we had played Little League together, and um, you know he was a, a big joker and a big flirt. But at the same time, you know we would be on a bus ride to a game or something, and he'd say, Dan, what do you think about God? It was just an honest question, an open question. And I would say, I, you know, I really don't know. But that night, uh, as uh, this young lady said, you know what happened is that he'd skipped school, gotten on his motorcycle, it was a misty day, and he lost control of the motorcycle and got hit by a truck. And he wasn't expected to live through the weekend. And, and so I was haunted by this question, what are you gonna do about it? I didn't know, I mean, what could I do? So I went home that night <clears throat> and did the one thing that I'd never done before which was to get down on my knees by the side of the bed and said, God, if you're there, save Chang. And I did that every night for months until in the spring, he opened his eyes, he winked at a nurse, <laughs> and I thought, he's going to be all right. And Chang continued, I mean... Um, I had the privilege of seeing him a few years back uh, when I went to Japan, and um, he was uh, quadriplegic. But one of the things that was interesting about that was um, uh, there was a group of um, chaplains that were coming to Glen Erie. And at that point in time, I was the um, executive director of Glen Erie. 
And I saw this group, and I thought, I recognize that guy. And so I, the next morning, I went, and I thought, oh, I know who you are. So I went down there, and I said, are you Chaplain Bowers? He said, yes. He said, did you ever come over and uh, volunteer as a coach for this tennis team over at this high school? He says, yeah. I said, I'm Dan Wooldridge. And he looked at me, and he says, I can't tell you how much my wife and I prayed for you. And I said, Had you hear, did you hear about Chang? He said, oh, yeah, I know. He said, I went to the hospital every day while I was in his coma. And while he was in his coma, I would talk to him about Jesus. And when he came out of his coma, I said, Chang, I've been praying for you, and I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And Chang says, you don't have to tell me. All the time I was in a coma and you were talking to me, I heard you, and I've committed my life to Christ. And so when I met, when I met him, I came and I said, Chang, <clears throat> I, I got to tell you a couple of things. I said, one is that um, my dad had separated from my mom after 43 years and moved back to Japan. And somehow or another, he ran across Chang, and Chang invited him to study the Bible with him. And I said, the other thing, Chang, I said, is that if nothing else comes out of your life if you, in terms of accomplishment, then the fact that God used what happened to you for me to come to Christ, I said, I'll be eternally grateful for how God, what you've done you know, and how God's used you in my life. And, uh, and we just had the best time, just the best time of just uh, worshiping together. And he had this uh, specially tricked out car that he could drive, you know, and uh, with Christian music and everything. And I thought, this is unbelievable after all these years to, to know about Chang. But going back to that night where I heard the, ex, heard the news, I, didn't, I, I, I wasn't at that point yet, and I didn't know that about him yet. And there were a series of other things that began to happen and I began to come to the conclusion that, you know, if I could change the laws of the land, if I could change the governments, if I could change the leaders, if I could change all of those things, if I can't change the heart of a man, then I can't change anything because all I would have done is given them a new suit of clothes, but I wouldn't have changed the nature of the person. And that was the real problem. And I didn't have any answers. So I continued the rest of the months there in Japan, speaking uh, to audiences, always, always kind of offering a message of hope, always an optimistic message, and I didn't believe any of it, because I didn't feel any of it in my soul. So um, I wasn't too scientific about where I was going to go to college. Uh, my dad was from Texas, so I thought, okay, I'll go to Texas. <laughs> You know, Tokyo to Texas is a little bit of a cultural leap, <laughs> especially in those days. And, and Texas won the national championship, so that was kind of like, that sealed the deal, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, but I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to come to this country, and I'm going to start all over, because surely there's an answer here that I didn't see there. And I landed in San Francisco, kind of at the height of the Hyatt-Ashbury, hippie sort of movement of those days. And I'm looking around, I thought, there's not any answers here. <laughs> so I, we, we, I went on down to Texas, and my parents had uh, bought a home there. 
in order to help us establish a residency in the United States for our citizenship purposes. And it was by the lake. And so I would go out there every day to the lake and I'd come to study political science and to continue to get my, continue my involvement in that world. And I would sit out there by the lake every day, kind of on this bluff, looking out and thinking, what am I going to do with my life? What can I do that'll make a difference? And I couldn't figure out anything. And then about two weeks before school started, <clears throat> I was sitting out there, and it was almost audible. God said, I I'm, I'm the answer you're looking for. And I'm, and I'm kind of stunned. And I said, okay, but I don't know what to do next. So the ball's in your court, God. <laughs> so I go on <clears throat> to this campus of 45,000 students, and I don't know anybody. And as far as I know, I was about maybe the, one of the very first Asian-American students on the campus. My classmate was uh, Julius Whittier, who was the first African-American football player at the University of Texas. And so it was just, it was just those times. And, uh, and people didn't know what to call me. Sometimes they thought, okay, he's Hispanic, and they would come up and talk to me in Spanish. And I thought, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> and then it was just kind of an age where, you know, cultural misappropriation was pretty rampant. And so they didn't understand the difference between Japanese and Chinese. And so then my nickname on campus was Chairman Wu. Loosely patterned after Chairman Mao. So, I mean, I'd be walking across campus and somebody say, hey, Chairman, or woo, you know? And, and I, I mean, I just took it as a joke. I didn't take it any, any other way, you know? But it was kind of funny. I thought, okay. And I'd play along with it. Um, but the first day of campus, though, you know, you're on this, you're in, you're in class for the first time, and you're going from a really small school to all of a sudden sitting in these freshman English classes and history classes with, you know, 400 people in them, and you don't know anybody. And so I got through the morning, and I'm in the cafeteria for lunch, and I'm in the back of the line in the cafeteria, and a guy in the front of the line gets to the walks to the back of the line and introduces himself to me and says, hey, I'm, my name's Rick. And I saw you in one of the classes, and I thought I'd, I'd like to just meet somebody that I, I recognize, you know, from class. So we sat down and had lunch. And as a, just as a point of conversation, I told him about this encounter that I'd had with God a few weeks earlier. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of get into the conversation pretty fast, right? And he just looks at me with his jaw on the floor, and he said, you know, just this past spring, I committed my life to Jesus Christ. And he said, um, I've been invited tomorrow night to a Bible study for uh, a new ministry that's forming on campus, and they're meeting at this guy's house just off campus. Would you like to come with me? And in my mind, I'm thinking, you just, you just made the next move, didn't you, God? <laughs> so I went back <clears throat> and found a Bible, you know, and um, it had never been really open. So you know how it is when you get these new Bibles and the pages still stick together, you know, and stuff like that. And so I brought that in, and we went into this guy's house, and... <clears throat> um, there were little groups, you know, three and four here in this corner, three and four in this corner. And I'm obviously the rookie, so I'm over here with these two other people. And it's like book one, lesson one, studies in Christian living, who is Jesus Christ? And you go through the little booklet, you know, answering those questions like that. And that evening as I'm driving home, I'm just absolutely in tears. 
Because in that moment, I knew that that was the answer that I'd been looking for that would change the world. And I, I tell people that all the time that, you know, for a lot of people in this country and in this society, in this culture, in this day and time, it's like living in at the mouth of a cave where it's neither light nor dark and you're kind of accustomed to both. But for me in that moment, it'd been like I'd been living all my life in the darkest recesses of a cave and just like that, God put me in broad daylight. To be exposed to the scriptures had that kind of impact on me right away. And so, uh, you know, these, these guys, uh, these, these, these were, this was a navigator ministry, and they, they kind of, you know, kind of smell somebody that might be uh, of interest here. And so they latched on, and it's like the next day, a guy comes by and says, you know, <clears throat> you really ought to memorize these verses here. And then he gave him this little packet of five verses, you know, this, the beginning with Christ packet. Remember that, some of you? And, uh, and so I said, okay. And so I took him home, and I came back the next day, and I said, okay, what's next? <laughs> I'd memorized those verses. And they said, well, um, you know, we're, we're going out on the campus, and we're sharing our faith with students in the dorms and things like that. Would you like to come? So the next day I went out and we're just knocking on doors and doing cold turkey evangelism all over the campus, you know? And it's like, okay, well, what's next? Well, you know, you really ought to read the Bible. Oh, okay. And so like three months later I came back and said, okay, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> and they, they, totally, they totally mistook all of this, I think, for maturity. It was just like, I was that hungry. And um, then that fall, um, the University of Texas campus had been targeted by uh, the political activist groups for a little love and attention, and there was going to be a big march on the Capitol building. And, uh, and, as, and so the weeks leading up to that were full of uh, activists and speech making and classrooms being taken over and disrupted by the activists because they brought in a whole team of 25 or so full-time activists to take over the campus and disrupt the campus. So there was a, maybe there were maybe 300 Christian students on the campus that were involved in these ministries and the leadership said, we gotta pray and we've gotta pr provide an alternative. So we began to get together every night in one of the classrooms and pray. And uh, at the end of the week, the day before the, the demonstration, um, the, the student, the leadership, uh, asked three of us to stay after the meeting. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, we've all been in this classroom, we'll help kind of put it back together and clean it up and things like this. And they said, well, what's gonna happen tomorrow as the demonstration forms up on the West Mall in front of the Union before it marches on the Capitol, is that all these students, we're anticipating 12 to 15,000 students here on the Mall getting ready for the march. And uh, we're gonna set up a microphone at the front door of the Union, overlooking this mall area, and we'd like the three of you to share your personal testimonies to the group. And so the three of us are kind of looking at each other like, why us, you know? Uh, you know, that's not, not very much notice, you know? And, and it, so we did ask them, so why, why us? And they said, well, because you're Hispanic, you're African-American, and you're Asian-American, and we just don't think the demonstrators 
are going to do anything to people that might represent minority groups. That was not, that was not comforting at all to three of us to know. <laughs> so the next day, so the next day we, we go up there. And, you know, I mean, you know, you're just this little skinny 18-year-old freshman that doesn't know anybody on the campus, and you're just like two months old in the Lord. And the microphone's there, and it's time, and you just feel somebody kind of push you in the back <laughs> and urge you to the, to the microphone. And I shared with them. I don't think it was very eloquent or very long, but I shared my faith story along with two of the other two. Now, it really helped that they had a heavy hitter behind us because then Josh McDowell took the stage right behind us. You know? But what happened then was that all the Christian students then mingled with all the demonstrators as the, as, as the, you know, as the time went by to for, forming up on the march. And I went out there and sat down next to some students that were waiting there. And I began to share with one of the guys, a guy named Ricky, my story, and urging him to give his life to Christ. And there was no responsiveness, but I just kept pleading with him. And it finally, he raised his hand and said, stop talking. I said, he said, when you started talking with me, I could not understand a word you said because I was so high on acid, you can't, I just, I was not coherent. But he said, I began to hear God through you. And he says, I want to give my life to Christ. And then as the demonstration got up to walk away, all of the energy of the demonstration was gone. Because throughout that whole mall area were hundreds of people engaged in ones and twos and threes talking about the Lord. And that, that day as I went home, uh, there was just this brilliance to the day because I saw kind of this crossing of the path that I might have been on with the path that had the answer. And I, and I saw the solution to what was going on in the world in what happened in Ricky. So I, I tell you that because I think that those beginning things in our lives are so important. All of you, hopefully, you know, can track really the path through which God has brought you to the point where you've accepted him as your Savior and your Lord. And, but it's just the beginning. But we've got to grow and develop from there. And so what I'd like to share, and I think it's going to build on what Patricia was sharing this morning a little bit, is just the central role of the scriptures in doing that. As I said earlier, you know, when I went to that Bible study that first night, it was like being brought out of the darkness of a cave into the brilliance of sunlight, because I thought, that is truth. That is the answer. And, and so, but for so many people, I don't think that they open the scriptures or look at the scriptures and really realize that. And if, if nothing else happens tonight, I want that to happen to you. That you come away this evening with a different sense 
of how unbelievable it is for us to be able to hold the truth of the Word of God in our hands and let God speak to us. You with me? This is in, this, in these last few weeks, I've been coming across some things that have really been interesting in a disturbing way. Right now, um, according to the latest uh, research, 68% of Americans consider themselves Christians, broadest sense of the word. But only 6% have a biblical worldview. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Less than half are classified as born again, 33% of the adult population. And even among, quote, born agains, only 13%, the researchers are showing, actually hold a biblical worldview. Now, what's alarming is that since 2020, a really stunning and concerning shift has happened in our culture, in, this, in American society here, is that the, the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University published this, and they said there's three categories that they were looking at by worldview. The top one is integrated disciples, and these are people that have a biblical worldview and that, that really their uh, beliefs and behavior uh, take the scriptures and they're really integrated into their life. And in 2020, that was 6% of the American population, but in three years, it's dropped to 4%. Then the middle is what they call emergent followers, and these are people that have some portion of their worldview that's biblical, but not enough to qualify as truly a biblical worldview. There's a mixture of other things in terms of what they believe in terms of their worldview. And that's gone from 25% down to 14%. And then the biggest category is what they call world citizens, and they possess a worldview other than a biblical worldview. And they might have a few beliefs and behaviors that are consistent with biblical principles, but by and large, their worldview, the way they think, what they believe, and how they operate, is from a framework that's totally other than the Bible. And that's increased from 69% to 82% in three years. Something is happening. And then there was a correlation by age, where it's saying that adults under, 30, under age 30, only 1% have an integrated worldview. And in adults 30 to 40, 3%, adults 50 to 64, 5%, adults 65 and up, 8%. It's kind of scary, isn't it, when you look at that? Then, this was even scary too, that the percentage of Christian pastors that actually possess a biblical worldview. They say all Christian pastors, 37% have a biblical worldview. If you're a senior or lead pastor, it's 41%. Associate assistant pastor, 28. Teaching pastor, 13. Children's youth pastor, 12. Executive pastors, 4%. Where's all this leading to? And Barnum makes this point. He says that people don't develop a biblical worldview, you know, by default or randomly. But the impact, really, of arts, entertainment, government, public schools is clearly apparent in the shift away from a biblical perspective to more experiential and emotional decision-making style. Do you all sense some of that happening? 
So just back up for a second, you know, what is the worldview? Well, a worldview really is the comprehensive framework of what you believe about God, about people, about right and wrong, about the world. And, 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 and it's basically the roots of your life. Because the biblical worldview then generates the values, the priorities, the things that you um, <clears throat> decide with. And in turn, what that does is that it creates the fruit of your life through your behaviors. And so it's essential. You know, when Jesus said, you're going to know them by their fruit, you realize that he was talking to people that didn't have a biblical worldview. And the fruit of their lives was something other than Christ-like, wasn't it? But the biblical, but a worldview is not developed in the public sphere. The biblical worldview is developed really in your private life and in the personal commitments and the things that you're doing to kind of enrich that. Because you're, you're being fed, we're all being fed by all kinds of other things that are trying to feed the roots. And if we don't let the roots of our life be formed and fashioned and fed by this truth of scriptures, then the fruit of our lives in terms of the decisions that we make and the consequences of our life and the behaviors of our life are not gonna reflect the, the scriptures and God. Proverbs says, for as, as he thinks within himself, so he is. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that you can actually follow Christ without a biblical worldview? I'm afraid that's kind of a challenging question for us today. Because when you think about the percentage of the population, especially young people, you know, who could profess to be Christian, but when push comes to shove, there's really not a biblical worldview there. Can you say that you're a disciple of Christ? Can you say that you're actually following Christ? Without a life that's not rooted, with a life that's not rooted in the scriptures. J.B. Phillips has this great translation in Romans 12, too. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove and practice what the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves toward the goal of maturity. Or if you want to look, I think, at the Old Testament version, I like Psalms, Psalm 1. You know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Elton Trueblood. Uh, a Quaker theologian, had this devastating comment of the generation of the 60s. And I don't think that it's any less true today. He said, the terrible danger of our time consists in the fact that ours is a cut flower generation. Beautiful as cut flowers may be, and as much as we may use our ingenuity to keep them looking fresh for a while, 
they will eventually die, and they die because they are severed from their sustaining roots. Most of our world, the people around us, don't have sustaining roots in their life. They may look beautiful for a period of time, and the freshness and the beauty of their lives can be maybe artificially sustained, you know, add a little fertilizer to the water, you know, but at the same time, they will eventually die because there are no roots. So I think that what I'd like for you to do here is turn over to 1 Kings, uh, 2 Kings chapter 22. And I want to talk to you about the lost word. As you're turning there, I want to, this is, I'm going to take you to the time of Josiah. Josiah, I think I got a, yeah. You can see Josiah right over here. And he's in between Manasseh and Jehoiakim, and he's one of the kings of Judah. It's already been about 80 years since Israel, the 10 tribes of Israel, have been carried off into captivity uh, by the Assyrians. And Isaiah and Micah, about 100, 150 years earlier, had been prophesying to Judah about what was going to come. And now in Josiah's time, the prophetic activity has really amplified because there's a danger. There's been a period of revival under Hezekiah, and then Manasseh's son is evil, 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 and has taken the nation down again. And now Josiah is on the throne, and he's got a heart for God. And, and there's, a, there's a tremendous activity of, of, of prophetic work that's going on under um, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, in the beginning ministry of Jeremiah. And so there's a lot of work where God is speaking to the nation and, and trying to warn the nation. And then what happens is in 2 Kings 22, and I'm going to read this at length here because I want you to get what's happening. Josiah is, is a young leader, king. He's about 26 years old, and he's already endeavored to begin work on repairing the temple that had been damaged and desecrated. And so in, in verse 3, it says, In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. The temple had been really desecrated and damaged under the previous king. Josiah has taken it upon himself. Here he's talking about the collection of funds to underwrite the repair. And this is what's happening. So in the process then of, of this repair work going on, in verse 8 we'll pick it up, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, 
Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it to the king, before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Achor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Hakam and Achor and Shaphan and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tivkah, son of Harus, keeper of the wardrobe, now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Josiah, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that you should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Then 23, very briefly, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Do you get just what happened? During the previous reign, the word of God had been pushed aside. You know, it's like they were doing the remodeling work and they found the words, the word of the Lord, the scrolls, and they just put them in the black back closet somewhere. And nobody in the nation knew that the word of God was gone. They were rebuilding the temple. And they probably, they probably fancied themselves as followers of the Lord. But the word of the Lord was gone. And Josiah makes a stunning discovery when the, 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 the scrolls are brought to him and they read him. And, 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 and it's just, he's just over, I mean, he's overcome with fear, right? And shock. Because it's like, we haven't been obeying the word of the Lord, you know? And we're in deep trouble here. 
And, and, and God, because of his repentance, <clears throat> says, you know, it's too late to really say that I'll not judge the nation. I'm going to judge the nation, but I'm going to give it reprieve while you're here. And in his time, there was a lot of reform. And, 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 he, and he, didn't, he didn't live to see that destruction. And it was eventually followed by a collapse. And, you, and I began to think, okay, why did it collapse? You have this shocking situation where the word of the Lord is gone. And people didn't even know it was gone. They revive, they reform, and then it collapses. And I think that there's a couple of things. Jeremiah is preaching at the time, and Jeremiah is making these pointed statements. He says in Jeremiah 7.28, truth has perished. In Jeremiah 8.9, he says, they have rejected the word of the Lord. In Jeremiah 9.13, he says, they have forsaken my law. And in 23.18, he says, who has paid attention to his word and listened? Amos <clears throat> said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, and not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And I think that it <clears throat> what was happening was something that's echoed in, 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 in the first chapter of Romans, where Paul is writing, and, and he says that you get to a situation then in society where you've turned so far from the Lord that God gives them up. And what does he say? In 124, God gives them up to the lusts of their heart. In 126, to their dishonorable passions. In 128, to their debased minds. In other words, at some point in time, when we've lost the word of God and are no longer living from a biblical worldview, God says, okay, then my judgment is just to turn you over to the consequences of the life that you're living and the beliefs that you have. And you begin to see that play out, right? <clears throat> Why? Why do we turn away? Well, let's just turn over to Matthew 13 for a second then. And it's familiar. And it's a parable of the soils. And think about this for a second. In 1 through 9, it says that the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. <clears throat> and great, and great uh, crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some feed seeds fell upon the path. And the birds came and devoured them. And other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. And other seeds fell among thorns. And thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear." And of course, the later he has to explain it to the disciples in these verses over in 18 through 23. And he says, here are the parable of the sower. Anyone, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This was what was sown along the path. 
And for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet it has no root in, itself, in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulations or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. Sound like a cut flower there, doesn't it? And as for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And as for what is sown on good ground, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. And I really feel like what was happening in the time of Josiah was after that reform that that we you you were, what was happening that without Josiah's leadership that people basically reverted to the type of soil that they were. And there were very few, very, very few that ended up being good soil. And so you, it, you, you came to the destruction of, of the nation. So my questions, are, these are some of my questions that I have for you today. You know, is your heart hard toward the word of God? You may not think so, but when push comes to shove, does your heart really resist what's in the scriptures? You can go through the motions of reading the scriptures, but in your heart, is it the word of God to you? Are you failing to put down roots in the word of God? You know, are you dabbling in it? Do the world's priorities, cares, and desires dominate you rather than the scriptures? And are you seeking to listen, learn, and understand the Word of God? All of us need to do some soul-searching in this, because I think it's easy to become casual in the way we think about the Scriptures and about how we approach the Scriptures and how we respond to the Scriptures. This is my fear for us. When you look at those statistics earlier about what's happening to the biblical worldview and the number of people that say they're Christians in this country, and yet such a fraction have an integrated biblical worldview, are we a generation that's in danger of losing the word of God and not even knowing that we've lost it? We may be carrying it around as a book, But that's not the same as having the Word of God in our lives, is it? And I pray that you all would really rise up to the challenge of this and not be the generation that lets the Word of God be lost in this generation. And that your heart and your approach, your commitment to this book, you redouble that commitment to become men and women of the word. What would happen if God just gave us all up to the things that are operating in our hearts? <laughs> you know? It's scary, isn't it, to think about that? So let's talk about getting a grip on the word. And I'm going to cover ground here that you've heard many times. But I'm not, I'm not, a, I, you know, I'm not, a, <clears throat> I'm not 
I think, embarrassed to think about this. You know, and Peter, Peter said, look, <laughs> I'm going to remind you of these. You know these things already, right? You know these things, but I'm going to remind you anyway, you know, because we can't ever forget, and it's good to be reminded, right? And to keep it, in, in, you know, front and center in terms of our thinking. So how many of you are familiar with this illustration? Pretty much everybody. I mean, yeah. You, you told me they did, Neil. <laughs> and I told you I was going to remind them, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. I think this is a starting point. And I think when I was telling you about the impact that the scriptures had on me in the early days, I keep coming back to this. These were the habits that I learned at the beginning and I continue to hold on to. You know, John Wooden, the legendary coach of UCLA basketball team, was asked about the fundamentals. And every year when his all, these All-American recruits would come into UCLA, you know what his first coaching session was? It was how to put on your socks and shoes and tie them properly. And you've got all of these All-American, All-World players saying, what, what? We're basketball players. But he was saying, the basics are basic because they're basic. <laughs> and he says, if you don't know how to put your shoes and socks on properly, you're going to get blisters, and then you're not going to be able to play. So let's start with the most fundamental things. And he would repeat it every single year to, you know, to these incredible basketball teams. And so this is the same thing in terms of this, that we need to kind of dust off, dust off this hand illustration and take inventory. And that's what I want to do tonight is just kind of take inventory of ourselves in terms of what we're doing. And you remember too, you know, the, the idea is here is to get a grip on the word, that if you can just hear it, you're going to retain about 5%. If you're going to read it, you'll retain about 15%. Study 35, memorize 100%. But it's in the meditation that you really get a grip on it because that's where you unleash the power and the application of the scriptures in terms of your personal life. So let's listen. Let's talk about listening for a moment here, you know. <clears throat> Patricia and I were having this conversation a week ago, and we were thinking, you know, it's amazing that you can hear but not listen to somebody. Or conversely, you can listen and you're not really hearing, you know. And we're so influenced by what we hear. So my challenge to you is, of all the things that you're hearing day in and day out, and the noise level in our world is going up, right? I mean, the number of things that you can consume through the auditory channels is unbelievable. And, and so of all the things that we're hearing, what's really influencing our lives the most? You know, are we really, are we really protecting and investing and in making sure that what we're hearing is helping us develop biblical roots in our world, in our lives. And, and are we making sure that we're not just kind of hearing the noise pass through, but we're really listening to what God is saying, you know, as we hear. We, there's so much noise. There's so much kind of sonic activity that I don't think that we can kind of get the signal for all the noise that's in there. And so, you know, let's take inventory of what we're taking in in an auditory way 
And then when we're listening to somebody teach from the scriptures or we're listening to the scriptures themselves in audio format, that we're not just kind of mindlessly letting it play in the background and think that we're listening. Let's think about it. Let's engage our minds in what we're hearing. The second thing is reading. Patricia was sharing this morning about reading. And I think reading the Bible is a struggle, isn't it? I think, you know, I think that we kind of had a little bit of a straw poll in terms of how many people have really read through the Bible, you know, and it's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge. And what I want you to do is say, read, when you read, read with an engaged mind and a spirit. And I think another part of this reading, too, is that, you know, even when I put up the little timeline of, of the prophets there, I feel like it's important as you're getting into a reading program in the scriptures and you're reading through the scriptures, that you spend time that as you understand the book that's being written, that you spend some time learning about the context of the time. Who, who, is, who is being talked to? You know, what's going on in the world at that point in time? If you don't do that, you can't even begin to understand, say, the prophets. If you don't understand the times and who and what is going on. But if you understand those things, then as you're reading through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, you can begin to understand the bigger picture of what God is doing. And I think that as you're reading together and sharing what you're reading with each other, not just kind of read to kind of check off the, the you know, we've read three chapters this week, but to really engage in the questions that are raised, it's going to really deepen you. Because our tendency a lot of times is to kind of camp on kind of the, the familiar places, or the nice places, and in and, and places where I kind of have a particular interest. But when you're reading through the breadth of the scriptures, what happens is that God opens up issues and thoughts that hadn't occurred to you before. Because you're looking at that situation and thinking, my gosh, I never thought about that, you know? Or all of a sudden you realize that speaks to the situation that I'm in. I didn't realize that the scriptures spoke to something like that. When Patricia and I were first married, we decided that one of our commitments is that we really wanted God to be a part of our marriage. And we needed to learn to let God speak to us in our marriage relationship. So when we got our first apartment down here in Costa Mesa, the first, the first, the first week or so we moved in there, we got our Bibles and these blank notebooks and we started in Genesis 1, and we sit across the dining room table for each other, and we'd start reading. And then we'd just pause and say, what did God say to you? Wow, I, what do you think about that? And we went from Genesis to Revelation, year after year, and made that interaction a part of our marriage and our daily conversation. And what it did was that it began to bring God's voice into our relationship and our marriage. And to this day, we continue to do that. I mean, what I love about mornings at home when I'm not traveling is that I get to wake up early and make Patricia a cup of coffee, <laughs> bring it back to her, and I always ask the same question, how's the coffee? <laughs> and she always gives me the same answer, that's great. <laughs> and then we'll talk about what's going on. And we'll talk about the scriptures and what God is teaching us. And we'll go on walks and talk about that. And it's made all the difference. 
in our lives in terms of, of our marriage. But it's also helped us see the world and see the situations that we're in because we're reading through and we're getting a grasp of the whole of God's story. So rather than looking at it being a daunting thing, may I really challenge you to make a commitment to begin reading the scriptures. Have some accountability with one another, but read the word of God. And I'm really concerned about this in today's world because we'll read books about the Bible, you know, and about all kinds of topics, but we don't read the Word of God. And so it's going to take a little bit of discipline, but there's so many benefits to reading that I've already kind of alluded to. And I say, read with discipline, read with discipline. And, you know, once you get into the habit, it'll become a groove in your life where you're reading and writing and thinking, reading and writing and thinking. And every time you go through, you know, you're going you're gonna to see more. And, and, the pic- and God's messages start going to start to click. And, and the picture of what he's trying to do will start to come together. Then the, the, third, the, the third finger was in the, was in the study. And again, it's just a challenge to you. You know, you're many of you, most of you are in Bible study. But I think, again, are you doing Bible study or are you studying the Bible? You know, are you, are you investing in serious study? When I think about the first group of guys that I disciple, and I'll share a little bit more about that tomorrow, one of the things that characterized this group of students was that we would study a book like 1 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, or, you know, whatever we picked for a year, you know, uh, one of the Gospels. And they were all busy students. But they would probably spend anywhere from 8 to 10 to 12 hours a week preparing for our weekly Bible study meeting. And then we would get together in Jester Dormitory at 6.30 in the morning on Saturday morning. It's a pretty quiet place to be in, a, you know, <laughs> in the world as a dormitory at 6.30 on Saturday morning. And, uh, and we, would, we, would, we would talk about what God had taught us during the week. And that would go from like 6.30 to 10.30 or 11 every week. And so the depth that was developed in those guys was unbelievable in terms of their heart for the word, their insight into the word, and their commitment to the scriptures. You know, I go around the country and I'll ask people, they say, oh, I'm in a, I'm in a study group with men or something like that. And I say, well, what do you do? Well, we get together once a week and... Um, we listen to a Christian song and talk about the song. I'm thinking, excuse me? <laughs> but, I mean, maybe that's extreme, but there's a lot of things like that that pass for studying the scriptures. And there's no substitute for digging deep. And so whereas the reading develops breadth and a grasp of the whole, studying helps you go deep, doesn't it? in terms of understanding the layers that are there and the meaning of those things. So I want, you know, I want to challenge you to go deeper and challenge each other to go deeper and dig deeper and spend more time doing that. Paul challenged Timothy and he says, study and do your best to present yourself to God approved, a workman tested by trial who has no reason to be ashamed accurately handling and skillfully teaching the word of truth. But I like the word workman and doing your best. 
A workman, you know, has the connotation of a master craftsman, somebody that really knows what they're doing, you know, in terms of work. And then the last one is memory. And Patricia was sharing about that earlier this morning, wasn't she, in terms of the role of scripture memory in her life. And so I won't, I won't belabor that point, but to say, you know, store up God's word in your heart. Store up God's word in your heart. And I'm not saying that necessarily, okay, you go out and start, you know, memorizing Genesis this week or something like that. But a little at a time, you know, store God's word in your heart. I can still remember <clears throat> the very day I can remember the sun and the warmth and the beauty of the day as I'm walking across the campus at UT and just like a bolt, God brought Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 to my mind in a living way. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And it was such a lift of encouragement to have God trigger that verse that I'd memorized as I'm walking across campus, just kind of minding my own business, and God says, I got a message for you. Remember this? And it just brightened the whole day. And it, gave me that, and it gave me that assurance that God was with me today in all his faithfulness. So memorize the word, because you never know. You never know when God's going to call upon that. And then the last part is there is in the idea of meditation. Rumination, you know, those of you that heard this, you know, from Joshua 1.8, the idea of rumination is, is also the kind of the translation of meditation there. And that's what a cow does when it chews and it swallows and then it regurgitates and chews and swallows it again. And basically what it's doing is it's extracting all of the nutrition that's there in the food that it's consumed. And so God is saying, don't just kind of study it academically. You have to kind of, at this point in time, think about it, reflect upon it, chew on it to absorb all the nutrition that's in there. And it takes God awareness and it takes self-awareness. And I want to make a point here from the science of self-awareness for a second, because this is something that I work with leaders on all the time. When you look at this chart, in the top left, there's the idea of, there's the concept of self-awareness, what I see and what I can do. And, and, and it takes self-awareness in order to have self-management. If you're not aware of how you're thinking, of how you're behaving, how you're deciding, then you have no ability to manage yourself. Similarly, on the other side, is that if you don't have self-awareness, you're not going to have social awareness. And what do I mean by social awareness is that you don't have any idea of how you're impacting or coming across to other people, nor do you have an understanding of how other people might trigger you, <laughs> you know, and how you're reacting to them because you're not self-aware. But it takes social awareness and self-management in order to have relationship management, in order to be able to have good relationships. And it gets worse because the science here shows that in terms of self-awareness, if you have self-awareness, it's still about a 50-50 chance that you can manage yourself and make the right decisions and exercise self-control. But if you don't have self-awareness, you can see that, 4% to 96%, you have almost no chance 
of being able to make the right decisions and manage yourself. You're out of control. Similarly, when you look at social awareness, if you have high self-awareness, it's still a one in three chance that you can understand how you're coming across to others and how others are affecting you. But if you have no self-awareness, the chances of you understanding how you're impacting others and how others are impact, impacting you, you don't understand. And yet, when we're thinking about ministering to people and living by the truth, don't you have to have the ability to know how to manage yourself and make right decisions and be understanding of how you're thinking and how you're behaving? And, and don't you have to have an understanding of how you're coming across to other people and how other people might be affecting you and how that's causing them to get a reaction out of you? So I think one of the keys to meditation is that if you're aware of God, what God's going to do is help you become aware of yourself and what's going on. And then, I think then down here, you know, in, in Psalm 19, I'll let you look it up later, you know, the psalmist is saying, who can discern his errors? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, because he's saying that we need God's word in order to be able to have discernment about what's going on in our hearts. You following me, guys? How are you doing? Doing okay? <clears throat> Another way of looking at this, and this is kind of coming again from the science and the world that I live in, is that the word of God is like feedback to you. And we were talking earlier today in, the, in the, uh, the session on lifelong learning. For most people, the idea of feedback <clears throat> is negative. You know, if somebody says, hey, Neil, the boss wants to give you some feedback, that's not a conversation you want, right? <laughs> and you're trying to avoid that. But if we were sitting up here on this, on this stage right here, and, and let's say the, the microphone um, interacted with the speaker in such a way that there was a loud screech. You know, we've all heard that, right, at some point in time. That's, there we go, thank you. <laughs> I love it, guys. <laughs> got to give these guys a hand. I mean, I got a good crew back there. <laughs> but feedback is a sign that the system is not working. And, it, and so feedback is a gift, Okay. And, and, and you get feedback from God, and you're going to get feedback from other people. And so Proverbs 15, 31 <clears throat> says that if you profit from constructive criticism, you'll be elected to the wise man's hall of fame. But to reject criticism is to harm yourself and your own best interest. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. So what we're crossing over here in terms of from not only meditation, where we're letting God speak to us, but if we're going to grow and be serious in terms of becoming mastered by the scriptures, we're going to need each other. And we're going to need to have the grace and the love and the commitment to one another to give each other real-time feedback. And I think that a lot of my personal learning, there were pivotal moments where people spoke to me tough things. But I think that if we understand that feedback is a gift, then we do that because we believe in each other's value and we believe 
kind of in the higher purpose of what, you, what God can do through you, then I think that what we want to do is we want to welcome people that will help us look out for the blind sides in our lives, right? And, and, and so we should be inviting that from one another. So let's commit, okay, to getting a grip on the Word and letting the Word get a grip on our lives. Let's hear it, but with attention and listening. Let's read it with discipline, grasping the big story. Let's study it to mine the deep nuggets and insights of the Scriptures. Let's memorize it to hide it away so that it's ready there for God to pull out. Let's meditate on it so that we understand how we apply it and, and, and what it's saying to us in our lives right now. And in such a way that God can give us feedback about how to direct us in terms of our lives. And let's open up that feedback loop to one another. And let's encourage one another to love and good works using the scriptures. Let's don't be the generation that loses the word. Let's pray. Father, it, it is just absolutely unbelievable that you've spoken to us, not only in your Son, but in your precious Word. And we don't have to worry about waiting in mystery, but that you provide us every day, Lord, the words that we need, words of encouragement, words of wisdom, words of hope, sometimes words of chastisement and reproof, but your words, Lord, to fashion us into the image of your Son for your glory. So I pray that you would just give us a passionate desire to hear from you and to be men and women of the Word, and that we wouldn't let other things distract us, the care for other things, that you'd help us to de develop deep roots in your Word, and Lord, that in the end, we would be men and women of the word. And though the world would lose it, I pray that we would not. So Lord, we just commit ourselves to this journey. In Jesus' name, amen.